This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev, and today I'm delighted to bring you a selection of Australian stories highlighting new releases in fiction. First up, Ben Hunter sits down with Hilda Hinton in the studio to discuss her brand new book, A Solitary Walk on the Moon. Then Ben sits down with Benjamin Stevenson to discuss his latest book, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. Check the show notes below for timestamps for all interviews, as well as links to all books mentioned. Now, over to our interview with Hilda Hinton, author of A Solitary Walk on the Moon. Hello, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and with me on the podcast right now is Hilda Hinton. She is the best-selling author of The Loudness of Unsaid Things, and her new novel, A Solitary Walk on the Moon, uh, has already made it to the top of Booktopia's bestseller charts, and at the time of recording, it's it's not even out yet, so that's that's got to be a good sign. She's here at Booktopia HQ right now, where she's just been signing a massive pile of books. Hilda, thank you for giving me a little bit of time to chat. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, so <laughs> we've been signing these massive piles of your book together, <laughs> uh, and the majority of those books, they're going to go to um, part of this community, uh, the Lovey Sister community or family, I don't know what to call it. Village. Um, <laughs> the village. Yes, the I village. love that. Yeah. Um, can you, for people who aren't aware of it, can you... Uh, tell us what Lovely Sister is and, and what it's like being a big sister to Connie and Samuel. Yeah, yeah. Well, Connie got diagnosed with cancer and set Sam the challenge of raising a million dollars for cancer research, which he managed to do uh, in our first year by riding a unicycle around the country. And when he got back, uh, instead of congratulating him, she said, what's next? And yeah, and that was 10 years ago, and we're now $15 million. um, Yeah, it has gone straight to cancer research because every donor dollar gets donated, no skimming, no admin. Um, And it's just, yeah, it's been a a hell of a ride. Unfortunately, Connie's not here anymore, um, but she'd be very proud of what we're doing and where we're at. Absolutely. Yeah, and the village that's sort of surrounded us throughout the the 10 years has been incredible. Just people out there, we go to regions, yeah, rural regions, cities, um, and nearly every family is touched by cancer in some way. And somehow we've sort of all banded together and offer each other support um, and friendship. Um, and even though it's largely online, whenever we go anywhere, um, we recognise the people we've been talking to all this time and it's just a fantastic community in itself a community of kindness yeah i love it um as an author of fiction you it's a it's a solitary profession right you you sit alone and you observe and you you kind of chronicle it in your own special and unique way but um the conversations and the people you've you at sam have have reached through this massive village that's that's something different, and you must you must be getting feedback or or or, or touching people and, and and hearing back about uh, loudness of unsaid things. So, uh, is that is that different? Is that a unique perspective you feel you have? Yeah, I certainly certainly. I mean, I'm I'm quite extroverted, and I love people, and um, sort of people recharge my batteries. So it is unusual to be writing on the side, and it is largely solitary. Um, but it's fantastic that I get my fix of people out there 
and I just love um, because I'm a great believer in storytelling. I think it's really an important part of our community because these days you get the government saying things like stop the boats and lock them up and what we're missing out of all that is the actual stories of the people who are hopping on a leggy boat, um, the people that are getting incarcerated or... Uh, and we're not hearing their individual stories anymore and our empathy and our social responsibility is largely born out of story and I think stories being shut down and I just feel privileged to be able to be in the story space because um, stories are more than stories. The publisher, Blurb, we were talking about that before <laughs> yeah. actually, uh, yeah. uh, it, it, it compares the novel to Olive Kitteridge and and I and having read that now, I, I, I get that a little bit. Uh, you have this character, Evelyn, who has a very quiet existence in a very mundane world, but a very <laughs> unique worldview, right? That that we just we're just taken on a ride for that as a reader, yeah. and uh, you you have to uh, just kind of digest that for a little bit. It's really different. It's really special. Um, tell me about Evelyn. How did you cook her up? Yeah, I mean, I, I, she sort of... She sort of... Oh, I wanted to write about a character that you didn't necessarily love mm. um, and that was difficult to get to know and sort of f- had flaws and foibles and sort of... Because we all have all those things and I just sort of wanted to focus on that side of her character um, before I even thought about her sort of more positive qualities. And I just sort of, I just fell in love with how unashamedly herself she is, how she sees the world. And as she developed and grew from from the germ of, of perhaps having somebody a bit prickly for a change, um, you know, I sort of think that as a reader you probably get to know her in the same way that I did because she sort of develops around your eyes and you're just you're, you're watching everything through her eyes. Um, and the way she sees people and judges them and tries to help them, you know, she's helpful but she's just not helpful. Um, <laughs> you know, she's more of a hindrance than a, than, than sort of a help Um Yeah, so you, you end up with all these conflicting emotions about about this complex, difficult, prickly, but but ultimately kind-hearted um, and, and hopeful woman who does her best um, for the people around her. She's a problem solver. She is a problem solver, yeah. Um, so she, she owns the local laundromat in a strip of shops and she tries to keep at arm's length uh, from people. So she follows people home. She's not a stalker. She follows people <laughs> home in case they ever need help. You know, there's a there's a particular old forgetful gentleman that's, that's always a bit grubby and she follows him home so she knows where he lives. In case he ever gets into trouble, she'll be able to help him. Um, and by following people home, um, she inevitably finds people do need her help and she strikes up this friendship and this, this sort of group of people that are all largely alone and don't have family support networks that we would think, you know, that we know of. Um, and, and they sort of band together and form a, form a sort of ragtag patchwork family. Um, yeah, all through our Evelyn's eyes. Yeah, she brings people together. That, 
That mm. took me by surprise, this family that forms. Yeah. Because at the outset of the book, it, it, it felt like I was on my way to a really weird kind of caper, mm. you know? Mm. <laughs> you got this it, stalker, not stalker, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> running a laundromat in this town and, and everyone has a little bit of a story behind what's going on. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm in for a bit of a caper, but what it quickly evolves to be and I, I didn't I didn't twig on this happening as a reader as it was ha- as, as it was kind of unfolding but on the out, on the other side of the novel I put it down and I was I was close to tears it is it's an emotional roller coaster yeah yeah which which life is yeah. Um, yeah and I just I wanted to focus on people that you don't normally read about. There's a gentleman, Don, who uh, works in the paint shop and he's been largely invisible his whole life. No one ever pays attention to Don. And we all know people in our community that we walk past every day that um, you wouldn't even think to say hello to, but they're kind of always there. Mm. And I just sort of wanted to point out, really, that everybody has a story. And it didn't doesn't matter who Evelyn comes a- across um, try as she might to stay at an arm's length. Um, she ends up bonding with them and getting their story and and sort of finding an ex- finding an existence with her. Um, so it was really about trying to find um, characters you don't normally read about. Other than Evelyn, I, I think my my favourite character is Ben. I'm I'm a Ben. I'm drawn to Bens. Yeah. Uh, now I have to ask you. <laughs> You've described this to me before that that you live with a kind of a an open house policy. Yeah, and yeah. I, I feel like maybe you've you've come across a few bends in your life. Yeah. So yeah. tell us about bends. Well, the house the house is called the house for the temporarily defeated. That's always been the name of my house for uh, twenty five years now. Um, so Ben's an eight year old boy. His mother um, isn't naturally happy. Uh, she has some addiction issues. She's not a natural mother. Um, she's doing her best to her credit, yeah. you know, she's, she's trying and Ben doesn't have anybody else really. He doesn't fit in at school. He's, di- he's, he's different. Yep. Um, he doesn't play sport. He doesn't, um, yeah, he just, he's, he's just, I don't know, kind of like I was as a kid, I suppose, just that little bit on the fringe. Mm. And, um, Evelyn... Evelyn, they come into the laundromat on Tuesdays and Evelyn becomes quite close to the boy and in turn... He comes ready with questions. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's got natural curiosity and mm. it's nice that despite how um, sort of on the outside, how depressing his life looks, um, that he's still got that natural curiosity of a child and the hope um, and forgiveness that comes with kids. And it's pretty hard to it's pretty hard to sort of get it out of kids. They sort of keep waking up every day with a cup of optimism. And certainly um, certainly with the people I've had through my door over the years, okay. um, you know, even young adults, you know, I, I love the way people sort of wake up, it's a new day, and start again with a bit of hope. And Ben sort of represents that. He reminds me a little bit of little... Well, I, guess, I, guess, I guess Eli is, is older in that novel, Ben's, Ben's eight going on nine. Nine's very exciting. Um, <laughs> but he reminds me of Eli Bell in Trent Dalton's Boy Swallows Universe. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't made the connection. Um, yeah. It's, it's a compliment. It is a compliment. It's, <laughs> it's a, actually a massive compliment. Uh, it's one of my favourite books. Who do you... Yeah, what are your favourite books? Who do you like to read? Yeah, well, um, I love that book. I love um, Bridge of Clay by Trent Dalton. Um, I love Zaphon's uh, sort of series of books. Unfortunately, he's recently passed away that were all set in the cemetery of forgotten books. He's magical. Um, Bridge of Clay yeah, was... Oh, God, knocked my um, socks off. It was epic, but that was Marcus Suzak. Yeah, there yeah. wasn't a wasted word in that yeah. book. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. Um, gosh, I read so many books, it's hard to pick them out. But yeah, Bridge of Clay was my sort of standout from the last few years. Um, but I also read a lot of crime, and I think what I love about crime fiction is not necessarily the crime stuff itself, but... The way crime writers do geography and make make you see a place is quite exceptional. Um, so I love I love reading my crime as well. You have um, you have your favourite books tattooed on your arm. I do, I do. <laughs> yeah, some of them are authors and some of them are single books. Um, are you on there? Uh, I have. Oh, how arrogant! I have oh, the title the of one of my books <laughs> on there. Um, yeah. If you're listening at home, I'm looking at a whole. Like uh, upper arm sleeve. A book stack. A stack. Yeah. A stack of favourites. I've got Elizabeth Jolly on there because she influenced me so much when I was an angst-ridden sort of 18 to 20-year-old. Um, I found a lot of comfort in her storytelling. Uh, I didn't feel so alone. So I've got people on my arm that um, are from a long time ago that I haven't read for many years but had a big effect on me. Um, Carl Hyacin's a sort of Florida crime writer who's... Um, uh, that the black humour in in his stuff is super impressive. Mm. Um, so he's on there for aspirational reasons because I like to think that I'm a bit funny in my books. I think my books are sort of funny, happy, sad. Funny, happy, sad. Yeah, I think that should have been the yeah, blurb. That's it perfect. should. Yeah, yeah. Funny, or like just the title of the yeah, next one. Yeah, funny, happy, sad. So yeah. that was something I wanted to ask. <laughs> a solitary walk on the moon is such a poem of a title. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because there's a scene where Evelyn's walking through a park and um, she she feels uh, she's not feeling terribly happy that day and she feels like she's walking on the moon and feels very alone. And ironically, when uh, my brother had a car accident and he'd just read this book two days before he got hit by a car and when he woke up, all he could talk about was Evelyn and he kept saying she's on the moon with only one moon boot because the earth has cast her off because um, um, that was the effect she'd had on him. Um, I love Because it was the last thing that he, he sort of remembered before the crash. And so the title is has multiple meanings for me because Evelyn um, certainly feels not of this world Um and certainly that's how Sam saw her sitting on the moon with one moon boot. So, yeah, it's a sentimental title for me. How is Sam doing? He's, he's doing well He's now. okay, yeah. That's good. Yeah, he's a lot better. And are um, you going to are you going to do the launch from the porch again? We are. Good. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to do that uh, in April. It's going to be really exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. It's a really good way of touching base and I think COVID's sort of open. I know I know, we're all a bit sick of Zooms, but it's also opened up a whole line of communication 
um, for people who can't actually see each other face to face. And yeah, very much looking forward to it. Yeah, it is. It is exhausting, but it's it, it when it's done right, it can be really yeah. special. Yeah. Um, are you are you nervous about book two? I am nervous about book two because book one, um, it didn't sort of matter how it went because I was just so thrilled to be published. Um, but I'm really enjoying what I'm doing and I want there to be a book three. So The only thing stopping a book three is an author writing book three. Oh, well, maybe. I mean, I've, I've started. That's great. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of think now that I've done this book, I feel, feel a bit like a real writer, not just a... Not just a one-off. You um, are a real writer. Yeah. You, you are certainly a person who is full of stories. <laughs> yeah, but like an actual writer. Yes. You know? Yes, it and is I've been special. reading books my whole life. I don't see myself as one of those people. Um, yeah, so maybe. You have... You, you brim with stories, though, and you've got many to tell, it seems. What do you hope to achieve with this one what, what would yeah. what do you want people to take away from it um well just to take note of the just just to look a bit harder when you're walking down the street and you know mm. before you walk into your house at night because you've got neighbors we're part of a community there's people everywhere everywhere has a story everyone has a story it doesn't hurt to stop and say hello because you never know what you're going to get um and it all starts with an open face and a smile. Um, you might see that person again and strike up a conversation. And, um, you know, it's, it's just a book about people and that we're all in this together. And we all have ups and downs and inwards and sideways and outwards and roller coasters and, um, you know, and we all have happy, sad, funny and... Yeah, I'd just like to see a bit more togetherness and I think ultimately um, the book's about togetherness. That's brilliant. I can't think of a better place to stop. (laughs) Hilda Hinton, thank you for being with us today and signing stacks of the thing and writing stacks of the thing. I hope you write (laughs) stacks more. Thank you. Uh, If you want to get a copy of this book, A Solitary Walk on the Moon, do it now. It's available from Booktopia, as are all of Hilda's books. And they are both the ones that have been published to date, published by Hachette. Now, over to our interview with Benjamin Stevenson, author of Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. Hello, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's fiction category manager and Today with me on the podcast, sitting across from me in person, which is so good, is Benjamin Stevenson. Benjamin Stevenson is an award-winning stand-up comedian and author. Uh, He's also a bit of a book industry insider with experience in big publishing houses and literary agencies. Uh, And his new book is called Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. And it is touted to be one of the biggest breakout crime novels of the year, both in Australia and abroad. It's been picked up by publishers in all different territories and translating into different languages. And there's an HBO adaptation in the works. It is very exciting stuff. So Benjamin, thank you for, I'm I'm humbled you're spending time with me. Oh, thanks for having me in. It's a pleasure to come in, you know, in person. We've done some stuff on Zoom 
in previous years. But yeah, it's great to be here. Welcome to the HQ. Um, this book, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, is different to the prior two novels from yourself. It is wild. Uh, so what, what has inspired this right of turn? Yeah, well, I, I guess, so first of all, to preface that it's fiction, it's not a memoir, just in case people are listening and thinking, what kind of confession is this book? <laughs> um, but I, you know, I've always written crime and then during the pandemic I just felt like reading sort of dour crime novels um, was just a bit depressing. You know, we're all inside and then crime novels are I believe they're about what people can do to other people like you know which situation can you put and what choices will those people make in those situations and I I was thinking about how to write my next book which became this book and I just sort of thought well you know maybe I want to do something a little bit more fun that's a little bit more fun for me to write just to sort of get out of my own head during the lockdown and um, then I started dipping back into Agatha Christie and, and the classic mysteries and I thought that the genre of thriller and crime has changed so much um, from back then where it was very firm, there are very firm sort of rules on how to do it and what you can and can't do. That has been successfully broken now, especially through the 2000s, you know, like by hiding things from the reader and hoodwinking the reader. And I was like, well, what if I play it absolutely straight and go back a bit? Um, and so I decided to sort of try and write an Agatha Christie sort of inspired novel that also had a really sort of modern, unique sensibility. And then at its heart, it's, it is still a serial killer mystery whodunit, um, but it's just a fun one. It really is. And you, you, you're right, it is, it is the polar opposite to the, uh, the thriller genre of uh, popular accord, which is the unreliable narrator. You have, a, you have a narrator that speaks directly to the reader and says, now I want you to think of me as a reliable narrator. I found that Wild yeah, and refreshing. <laughs> well, that was the key launching off point for me was the unreliable narrator. And I've, you know, I say this um, loving so many of those books, but I just wanted to do something different. And I thought, well, what is the opposite of, of, of an unreliable narrator? It's a reliable narrator. And what is, this is the weird thing, what is the craziest thing that I could do in a crime novel? And the craziest thing that I could come up with was to tell the truth the whole way through, play it absolutely straight. And I thought that. Th- that shouldn't feel as unique as it is. But then when I was writing it, I'm like, it is. It, it has come out as unique. So in this book, in the first chapter, the narrator who reads a lot of crime, he says, I know the rules of crime fiction and I want to be a reliable crime, uh, reliable narrator, as you said. And then he tells the reader everything that's going to happen in the book in the first two pages. And then the book sort of plays along with that and you as the reader sort of catch up to what he's told you, um, which spoils the entire book but also increases the mystery of the entire book. So by telling you what's going to happen, you have no idea what's going to happen. It's, it's, it's like a magic trick. <laughs> I love that. It, it is uh, incredibly clever. You've, you've, you've almost undersold it but it, is, um, it, it blew my mind and I was the, the, whole, the whole time just reading along with this book, I was just I was gobsmacked. I was like, this, this is just ferociously clever and... Um, I'm one of those people who is um, pathetically outwitted by all crime novelists uh, and you both outwit me but you also welcome me into your arms and <laughs> say it's okay Ben <laughs> I got you here which um, is that's that's what I exactly wanted to do I think that again just talking about those modern crime novels right I feel like modern crime novels are built 
to play the reader, mm. right? The reader is being played by the author, whereas my book, I feel like the reader is playing along with the author. And so that makes you feel clever when you get something or when something's resolved and, and it's the difference between uh, that came out of nowhere and I see what you did there and I think I see what you did there is so much more satisfying than that came out of nowhere, even if it's a huge twist. Um, and so pulling all those threads together, particularly at the ending and, and hopefully getting people to go, oh, that's what this, that's what everything is, um, I hope is is what comes from that. So that's what I was trying to do. Make it make it fun. Make the reader feel clever as they're playing along. It is definitely achieving that. It is so fun. Are you a, a scholar of the crime genre over the ages? Because there's a there's a yeah, there's this beautiful classical reference, particularly to the the golden age authors, you know, Agatha Christie you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, I love I, I love lots of crime. I've read crime my entire life, so um, really sort of um, soaked in everything, but I wouldn't say I'd say there's plenty of people that are more widely read than I am. Um, and I wanted to make sure in this book, though, that I was appealing to sort of the mainstream tenets of it, so not not really leaving people behind by getting too, too inside it. Although the rules in the front of the book are Ronald Knox's and he's slightly less known um, than, say, Agatha Christie. And Ronald Knox wrote a list of rules. The um, Ten Commandments, he yeah, called them. Yeah, the Ten Commandments for direct detective fiction that, that my narrator follows along in the book. Um but also in terms of the genre, like the stuff that I love is is in terms of the modern stuff, um, the – sorry, I'll start that again. The stuff that I read the most, um, Australian fiction, um, over the last sort of 20 years, you know, Peter Temple's The Broken Shore is my favourite novel. I love all, all the Australian rule nah, Jane Harper, Chris Hammer, like I love all of that. And then in terms of the modern stuff that's more playful um, – Anthony Horowitz, Richard Osman, Lucy Foley, um, the film Knives Out, like those things all sort of collate into what I was trying to do here. So it's almost more looking at other people who read the genre as well as me reading the genre when I was putting this one together. I have to ask also, so you've got the Ten Commandments, I'm just opening up the novel, that there's also in the, the very front page... And yeah, my, my proof copy here, it says earmark here. Which I yes, like. uh, refer back often, yeah. Uh, it, there's a membership oath of the Detection Club, 1930, a secret society of mystery writers, including Agatha Christie, G.K. Chesterton, Ronald Knox and Dorothy L. Sayers. There was a, a secret society of these Golden Age authors? Yeah, I mean, I might be putting it on a bit to call it a secret society, but they had a club and you had to be, you know, approved to get into the club. And they all talked about how to write crime and they had a little membership oath, which basically the, the gist of it is that you can't cheat. Your detective can't know anything the reader can't know, know and he can't make up the answers on the spot. But I just love the idea of those, all those writers sitting down in a room and um, just sort of chatting about how they put their works together. I mean, we mm. do it now. You know, it's always a thrill when you're at a writer's festival and you find yourself at a bar with a couple of crime writers and everyone's like, how do you do this? How do you do this? How do you do this? But to think that they did that back then with Agatha Christie um, is so cool. And so I had to put that in the book. You should start a club for Australian crime writers. I should. The Detection Club. Yeah. <laughs> you can argue about, you know, what kind of, I don't know, does, does Chris Hammer like jats or clicks or <laughs> what kind of cheese does Jane Harper have? Um, uh, uh, I have to ask this question. If you were murdered, who would you want to solve the case? Um, no one in my family. 
(laughs) (laughs) I feel like no one would really take up the mantle of detective. Um, Who would I want to solve the case? That's a good... uh, I mean, the boring answer is a competent policeman, (laughs) Um, but a police officer. But I'm trying to think of... I want someone with like a wild... A wild brain who can piece together, like, because I assume if I've been murdered, that you know, like, it's a pretty good, it's a good murder. Like, it's not like I got mugged in an alley and I just died. It's like there's a, there's a message written on the wall, and you know, something's not right, and what happened here, and what does this mean? And there's a, there's a book with pages ripped out, and all these yep. clues everywhere. So, um, I'd love Anthony Horowitz to be on the case of my murder. Him and him and his detective Hawthorne can come along. Mm. I love that. Do that. Uh, I have to ask this as well. Can pigeons be awarded for medals of service? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So there's Is that a, pig- a real thing? Yeah. There's a pigeon in the book who has a war medal. It's called a Dickens medal. Um, and it goes to animals who have shown bravery in conflict. Um, the most famous is a cat who got given a, model, uh, a medal for um, clearing out a rat infestation on a ship. Um, but I just thought it was so cute. And I had this sort of pigeon in the book and I thought, I'm going to give him a medal. I think he wears a medal on the cover, actually. Mm, mm. Um, so, yeah, just to, to, I just thought of, I found that fact and I thought, this has to go in a book. This is fantastic. And here it is. Uh, there's a lot of talk in this book about mobile phone battery and the incoming storm and uh, how, how, how hard it is to get out and, you know, the whole the tropes of setting up that kind of closed room drama and there's a library and they're like, well, the ha- we have to announce this in the library. Uh, does does you know modern forensics and the internet and mobile phones have, have they have they really? How has the genre kind of survived that? <laughs> well, I think the key thing you have to do is you have to take the phone out. Like mm. it, it's it's probably more in horror than crime, but any horror movie where somebody has a mobile phone. You know the movie ends, the the the, the book ends. So you, you, as an author, have to grapple with this kind of access that everyone has to each other in order to sort of get them on their own um, to develop the plot in the way you need to. But certainly in this book, like you know, they're they're stranded at that snow resort and the snow's coming in. But they're also, as the narrator makes pain to point out, they're not stranded. Like they could just leave. So. I'm making fun of the this sort of isolated, we're all locked in, we're all trapped by the storm kind of thing because they could just get in the car and drive down the hill. But they're all like, no, no, we want to solve it or we want to stay for these reasons or someone doesn't want to get their hotel room refunded. So they're trapped but in a sort of uh, a clever, unique way. And then, yeah, I always point out, I point out what everyone's battery percentage is whenever they pull out the phone in the book just so you know that I'm playing fair and that their phones aren't going to run out of battery at an inopportune time purely for plot reasons. How does it feel to be just breaking out with such a wild success right now? This book has really skyrocketed you. As someone as who you're an insider in the industry, you know, you work at Curtis Brown. There's, uh, you 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 know how the sausage is made to a great degree. Um, you know, it, it makes it, it blows my mind that you would you would still want to do it <laughs> because you know how horrible it can be and how hard it is and how unlikely what has happened to you is happening. Uh, how does that feel? To now it's just it's working. 
Yeah, I mean, it feels uh, amazing. Um, it feels like a dream. It feels like a huge relief. Um, but most of all, I think that there's two elements to it that I've been thinking about. And because I see how the sausage gets made, I know how rare things like this are and I know how lucky I am. So I've just been able to, at every point, just feel really grateful for everything that happens. Every every new country that comes in, I think we're up to 22 now. And, um, you know, everyone I met talking about the television series, you know, I'm just... I'm so aware that it's not an everyday kind of thing and that for some reason I've written this book at the right time um, where people, um, you know, I started this book two years ago and, and I didn't know whether this kind of um, lighter crime would fly and then Richard Osman came out when I was halfway through this book and mm. I remember talking to my publisher and they're like, have you read the Richard Osman? I think this might be what you're trying to do. And I'm like, well, that's fantastic because... You can't write to a genre curve. By the time you've finished the book, you'll you'll be you'll have missed the curve in publishing. So just very grateful that it's happened. And then also, you know, this is my third book. I'm very much a working writer. Like I write books, they sell fine. I have readers. It's great. Um, but you know, the average writer income in Australia is what it is. You can look it up online, and because I don't want to get it wrong on the podcast. But you know, um, the the it's an example of the 10-year overnight success. Like, yeah. like I have been writing and I've been just a jobbing writer and working writer and, and writing my books, which I'm very proud of and were published very, very well. Um, and then for this one to just sort of tip over on that seesaw, like I've done enough that it just tipped. Um, so, yeah, it feels like everything's happening all at once, but it's also uh, it's really nice to sort of know that um, the work over the last sort of 10 years has, has paid off. Yeah, fruitful. Uh, and those 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 two thrillers that have come out prior to this one are, are really good books. Like, read, listener, go go back and read them as well. Uh, I I want to ask you one one more thing, which is uh, something that just I struggle with a lot. And you know, you you are an insider in the publishing world, and you seem to be a real expert on crime. And I just don't know how to talk to authors about crime books on a podcast without ruining the book. <laughs> yeah. I, we've been doing this. It's going okay, I, I feel. Are you having a good time? Yeah. Yeah, good. But uh, how, do you, how do you do it? <laughs> how do you talk to crime writers? Um, that's a good question. I yeah, mean, right? We're, we're like any other writer. I, th- I think a lot, of, a lot of crime writers think so heavily about the structure of their book and, and mm. hiding the endings. Um, but especially these days, like, you know, everyone's got – You've got twists baked in. It's not just who who the killer is. You know, there's certain elements of of, of twists to novels that sort of come a hundred pages in, or you know, you know. It's I empathise with you. How do you interview Christian White? <laughs> you know, you can't say anything past page seven, or you or you're sort of spoiling one part of the intricate puzzle. Um, so I'll just I'll say uh, flattery. Just just flatter them. <laughs> Most crime writers, I'm sure most writers, but I know most crime writers would love that. I'm good at flattery. I'll stick to that. Uh, I have a, a silly challenge for you now. Sure. Um, uh, I've, do you ever think about crime genres and uh, something that I, I have a personal affinity with? Uh, I'll confess I've never read them, but uh, working online, I, I come across these titles and these covers all the time and they blow my mind. It's... It's the cosy crime, particularly there's a, a sub, sub-genre called the culinary 
cozy, which is mm. very popular in Murder America. Murder in a bakery kind of things. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. America loves those. They really do. And the titles are just excellent. Now, you're a comedian and you're a very sharp crime writer. So my challenge to you is I'm going to give you some titles and I want you to just pitch me a, okay. a yep. murder. All right. Sure. So, so the first one is On the Lamb, A Kebab Kitchen Mystery. Um, a 42-year-old kebab chef is found skewered in his own rotisserie oven by an aspiring uh, kebab truck, by a competing kebab truck owner. Ooh. And the competing kebab truck owner is the lead suspect and he has to clear his own name. Love that. Okay, number two. I haven't done that quite right because cosy crimes... Nowhere near as gory as people getting skewered in rotisserie ovens. It's, it's very much a bloodless knife in the back in the in the you know in the back room of the. Of the uh, but well, it's, let's shake it up. I, yeah. I'm, I'm down for that. Uh, my second one is against the claw, a lobster shack mystery. Um, Greg Gregson has a um, had a hand injury when he used to be a lumberjack. And they ran out of prosthetic hands, and so he has a lobster claw as uh, as a hand. And he also works at the lobster restaurant. And one day, his hand falls into the bisque, and a guest is poisoned by the lead in it. Well, and then he has to get away. That's a lot. All right, <laughs> that, that's involved. Yeah, you're good at this. Well, you got to have traumatic backstories. That's essential for any crime novel. Okay, one more. Pleading the fish, a seaside cafe mystery. Um, pleading the fish. What is the Fifth Amendment? The Fifth Amendment. <laughs> I'm pretty sure is uh, you can't testify because you don't want to incriminate yourself, so you plead the fifth, or in this case. The fish. Plead the fish. Okay. Um, this has a supernatural bent to it. All it's right. a detective who can talk to fish, um, investigates the death of a local fishing mogul, but the fish refused to talk. So he has to go live with them and earn their trust to get their confession. Wow. Well, thank you for playing along with that. Uh, one more question. Would, would you ever set a murder in a book distribution warehouse centre in Western Sydney? <laughs> I think you can set a murder anywhere. Um, my next book is set at a writers' festival, which you might be the first person to know that. Um, oh. So I'm doing a little bit of the publisher insider stuff, but I also I don't want it to be too... Uh, Exclusive, you know, there's there's a publishing industry that really happens behind the scenes, which is actually quite dull. And then there's the publishing industry that you often see in films and television, which is more exciting. So you got to find it, try to find the line. Um, but yeah, no, definitely. Well, maybe there's a distribution warehouse can can pop up in my next one, seeing as there's a lot of writers um, as characters in the book. So I want credit. Yeah. Okay. Royalties. Uh, talk to my lawyer about that. <laughs> Bleed the fish, uh, Benjamin <laughs> Stevenson. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. You can get a copy of Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone from booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks to Hilda Hinton and Benjamin Stevenson. 
You can find links to all books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. With the arrival of Easter and school holidays, we'll be going on a podcast production break for the next four weeks until the resumption of regular episodes on May 18th. However, in that time, we'll be dropping one special episode on April 27th. With the arrival of the Brisbane Writers' Festival, which will run from May 3rd to May 8th, I'll be sitting down to chat with authors Annabelle Abs and Christine Lumens, who will both be featuring in the festival. So please keep an eye out for that. Until then, we hope you have a safe and happy holiday break. Thanks for listening and never stop reading. Thank you.